Welcome back to Parenting Hour. You're tuned in to Unity FM 93.5 and 105.1. My name is Kathleen and we're here this evening talking about hyperemesis. Margaret and Chaz, who are both from the Pregnancy Sickness Support, both are trustees there. And they were talking before the break about the amount of work they do, which actually I was um, surprised to see because I, I haven't come across them and looked them up. And, but they are a great organization and do a lot of work and support on a one-to-one with mentor schemes um, and people that are there trying to help others that have hyperemesis. Um, before the break, we were we gave out some numbers, phone numbers, which we'll come back to again and we'll come back to the website again because I think all of you listeners need to know of this and need to pass on this information and to understand how many people can be affected from hyperemesis gravidarum, which is about 10%, I think, Margaret and, and Charles, we were saying before the break. Is that right? Yeah, about 10% have really severe pregnancy sickness, uh, which requires help um, with benefit from medication. Which is huge, actually. Do we know anything about the causes of this? Yeah. Um, recently, just in the past couple of years, actually, there's been some real breakthrough work um, done by geneticists in the United States. And we're now kind of 99% certain that hyperemesis is caused by um, a genetic component called GDF15. So GDF15 is the name of a protein which is produced by the placenta. And it's produced very early on and in very high amounts. And we know that there is a receptor for this protein in the part of the brain which causes nausea and vomiting. And that's known from other conditions. Uh, there's a condition called cancer cachexia, which um, is something which a lot of cancer sufferers um, unfortunately suffer from. And it's because the tumor produces GDF15 and it makes them feel sick. It makes them feel like they don't want to eat and they have no appetite. And often um, they become really kind of wasted away. You know, they, they lose a lot of weight and they just, they can't do anything about it. They just don't want to eat. And it's basically the same thing. It's the, you know, it's the same protein which is produced. It's also the same thing which makes you sick if you've had food poisoning or if you've done too much exercise. You know, sometimes you see marathon runners, they cross the line and they vomit or they throw up because they've just done too much exercise. Again, it's the same thing. That's GDF15 and it's your body's response to what it sees as damage, tissue damage. So we know that this protein exists, and we know it causes sickness, and it's been found in the placenta, but the key thing for hyperemesis is the genetic work, which shows that there is a mutation on the gene which women with hyperemesis have. So it's that in hyperemesis, you have a variant of this gene which overproduces GDF15, it produces far too much of it and that makes you uh, become far too sick. Um, and the good news here is that eventually that could mean that we could have a cure for it because if it was possible, and we're speaking to scientists at the moment at Cambridge um, in endocrinology who believe that it would be possible to create an antibody. So they would be able to create a drug which would block the signal in the brain so even though your placenta would continue to produce it, they would just be able to block your brain from receiving that and therefore it would remove the symptoms. So it's really exciting because for once, you know, it means 
that we might have a prospect of an actual cure, something to actually address the cause, rather than at the moment we have antiemetics. So these are drugs which are in general for nausea and vomiting, but they're addressing the symptoms rather than the cause. So they're not all that effective. I mean, they, they, they can be effective to varying amounts, um, but they wouldn't just switch it off. Um, so there is, there's this, of course it won't happen tomorrow. It would take time for our daughters, potentially there's a prospect of something. You spoke a lot about different illnesses beforehand. Can you give us some examples of people that have kind of come through, that have come to you and um, maybe they've either gone to hospital or they haven't gone to hospital or you've, you've given them mentors and that come through to the other side and have come back and, and told you about their journeys uh, and what they've done and how they've helped, how you've helped them and how they've helped themselves? Absolutely. Um, I mean, what we find is that through, um, through the volunteering and the mentoring, the peer support that we're giving, we have a lot of successful uh, pregnancies and um, nearly every single person says that it has been worth it. Um, this comes over and over again that the um, struggle that they've gone through, the effort of, of staying pregnant and, and just the vomiting and the nausea they've had to endure. By the end of their journey, uh, when they hold their baby, one of the, the things that they say is that everything was worth it. Um, so we have a lot of successful stories. There are um, some cases where the um, sufferer has had hypermesis uh, with such severity that none of the antiemetics, so we have different lines of, of anti-sickness uh, medication, the um, first, second and third line, where the third line is a stronger one. Um, and if none of those work, and if none of those work in combination as well, so it's not just that you take one, that you can take a mixture of them at any one time, uh, maybe two or three or even four. Um, and if they don't work, then the um, the top line is steroids. Um, we do know of a case where a particular um, woman was not responding to any of the anti-sickness drugs and was given steroids and was in hospital care nearly throughout her pregnancy. Now, that was a very, very severe case. Um, sometimes what happens is that the severity with which a sufferer um, is in their condition, they just can't cope. And we have had cases where they have terminated the pregnancy. Um, sometimes what also happens is that a woman might not be diagnosed with hypermesis and, and the, the GP or the doctors just dismiss it or think that the antiemetics will be enough. And they've they've gone through their entire pregnancy not having any more help other than a couple of antiemetics and they've coped through it in, in, in that respect. So um, it, it is very individualistic. It's very difficult to say. So each case is very individual and it has to be assessed on, the, on a case-by-case -case basis. But majority of our sufferers come through with a successful pregnancy um, and they are happy at the end of it but they are also wiser. So if they go in into it again, they know what they have to do by trying to get help early, trying to get the antiemetics early, and they know where the support system is as well so they can come back. Is it more common in first time pregnancies to later pregnancies? I'm not sure. Um, it's very, very common to have it again. Mm. The biggest risk factor for having hyperemesis is having had a high premises pregnancy. 
The second risk factor is whether it's in your family, so whether your mother or sister had it. And um, so I mentioned the, the genetics link, and I wanted to make the point that this means that um, you can pass it on to your daughters. My mother had it, and my two older sisters and myself have had it. So clearly it's in my family, and we then potentially can pass it on to our daughters. But it, it doesn't mean that it has to be in your family to begin with because this mutation on this gene can occur spontaneously. So it can just arise. So for my mother, her mother and sisters didn't have high premises at all. They, when she had it, they were shocked. They didn't know what was going on. So it can occur spontaneously, but when it's in the family, you, you have to be aware that you may pass this on to your daughters. doesn't mean they'll always get it because there are cases where um, the mother has it, but not all of the sisters have it. So again, it, genetics is quite compli complicated, but you are likely to have it again in your next pregnancy. There are cases where you don't get it again in another pregnancy. There are cases where you don't get it in your first pregnancy, but then you get it in your second and other pregnancies. So it's, it's mixed, but it, I think the most common pattern is to have it in every pregnancy. And it's something to prepare for. Um, as Shaz said, you're wiser. <laughs> After, like for me, I was wiser because of my mother and sisters. So I was, I was already preparing for this. And I was already, before I got pregnant, putting support into place because I knew from their experiences that support's very important. So I think what we advise, we have a pre-planning, pregnancy planning section on our website. So if you are planning another pregnancy, there's a plan there to help you to um, speak to your GP. And also, um, antiemetics obviously are key to this, but it's also social support. So it's making sure that your family and your friends are ready there to support you because you need to rest. Rest is absolutely key to getting through this. And if you're going to rest and you already have a baby or a toddler or another child, you're going to need help and you need the family around you and you're much more likely to get through it if you have the family taking care of you taking care of your child and doing the, the housework and all the other things that you're not able to do yes yeah, so it's trying to get this message out to, to people to contact you to look up this information on your website it would be actually useful to um, repeat that website and the phone number again so the website is Pregnancy Sickness Support. Um, I forgot, is it .org at the end? That's right, .org.uk. So Pregnancy Sickness Support, all one word, .org.uk. And the phone number again, Charles, if you'd like to repeat that. It's 024-7638-2020. Wonderful. And there's lots of information there. This information... And when people go for pregnancy, and you were saying the importance of, of putting it out as a pre-plan, maybe people are not pre-planning that much, but if they're going for their first visit, do they pick up a leaflet like this? Is, is the midwife they're meeting on their first visit uh, talking about something like this that could happen? Is GPs talking about this? You know, because we don't seem to be talking about it, and I don't know whether people understand that this is 10%. You know, 10% is a huge amount of every 100 people. 10 people will get this. This is a lot of, the, uh, of women we're talking about. And I don't hear the, the conversations happening. I think, I think the um, problem there is that 
there's a lot of overlap with the term um, morning sickness. And hyperemesis is a pregnancy sickness and it's a, the severity of nausea and vomiting which lasts throughout pregnancy. Now, initially, if somebody is presenting their symptoms, um, it gets overlooked at, oh, it's just, it's just morning sickness, it'll go away after the first trimester. Um, but the reality is that if it's hyperemesis, it won't. Um, and the, the way to pick that up is that by week four, by week six, the, um, the woman is already either severely nauseated or vomiting to the point that, that she is dehydrated. Um, and that, that will not happen in morning sickness. Morning sickness, as the term suggests, is that by at some point in the day, that woman will be able to eat and drink um, because the nausea has passed and they can eat and drink. And this is what we think is the, the, actually the biggest problem. Um, and this is why we, call, we specifically call it pregnancy sickness and not morning sickness. Um, nearly everyone suffers from morning sickness and it goes away. And they are even in fact, during the evening there or during the day that they are enabled to eat, but with premises, they are not. Um, this is constant 24 hours round the clock, nausea and vomiting, which doesn't go away. They can't eat, they can't drink, not even water. It doesn't stay. Um, and they are constantly vomiting, which is why they end up with the um, with severe conditions, with dehydration, and that's why they need hospitalisation and intervention. Mm. And how can we get, uh, besides programmes like this, how can we get more information out there um, to for people to understand the differences? What are you doing in your organisation to kind of get that message out? And how can we support you in that? Um, we do do midwife education so, um, and healthcare professional education. So we have um, educational packages that we can do with hospitals or primary care. Um, we work closely with uh, a scientific and medical advisory board of senior obstetricians and gynaecologists. We have worked with um, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists on guidance. So there is a clinical practice guidance document which was published in 2016. And this is um, clinical practice guidelines for the management of severe nausea and vomiting of pregnancy and hyperemesis gravidarum. And myself and one of the other trustees, Roger Gadsby, were co-authors on this document. And it's due for update. We, we are in the process of updating it at the moment. But the advice will stay pretty much the same, you know, early antiemetics and supportive treatment in hospitals. And we do try to promote this document through uh, professional bodies and from women themselves. So when women approach PSS, if they don't already know about the guidelines, we'll send them. And we're also working on a lay version of the guidelines just now, which is in more kind of common language for women themselves to understand what the treatments are. So it's a combination of top down and bottom up really. So we, we work with professional associations and healthcare professionals, but we also directly try and feed this up through women themselves by empowering women to have that knowledge and to be able to have a conversation with their GP because obviously GPs are, are they're generalists and they can't know everything. Mm -hmm. and the idea is to have a conversation with your GP and say, well, there's this guidance, and if you weren't aware of it, could you read it, please? And could we look at my treatment based on what it says? 
some GPs will be more open to that kind of conversation than others, which is part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. But I think it's partly, we, we partly like to empower women themselves, as well as improve education for healthcare professionals and midwives. We have um, a, a healthcare professionals friendly list. So uh, midwives and doctors can, can refer themselves to us and say, you know, I'm, I'm proactive in treating women you know, put me on your list so that we can direct women to the to people who are maybe a bit more knowledgeable about it and a bit more experienced in treating it. But but it is difficult. Um, we we do try to we, we attend conferences, the Association of Early Pregnancy Units, Royal College of Midwives, to try and raise awareness directly with healthcare professionals. Um, but it's it's a constant job, and we are a small charity, so there's a limit to how much we can do. I'm just wondering, uh, Kathleen, that but what we have also done in pregnancy sickness support is to um, uh, provide support to specific um, people from uh, ethnic groups from a back background, and we have given support to the Jewish community in London, um, taking on board what their specific needs are. And I'm wondering whether your viewers um, from an Asian background or Muslim background, and if they have specific needs, we can have a look at that. Um, once lockdown ends, um, we're happy to come and speak to uh, Muslim communities where they, if they would like to have more information directly from one of us, we're happy to be able to do that. Um, or both of us or um, uh, a team from Praises Sickness Support are, are willing to do that to be able to reach the communities that you think um, would benefit from wider awareness. Um, or, or even just to be able to have an open space where they can talk about it, might not be able to talk about it in families. And if, if there is a um, a place where they can come and talk about this, we'd be happy. Uh, we'd be happy to be involved in that or come and support it. Wonderful. I, I think this is so much needed, um, and I'm sending out actually information now. But as we're speaking, so for people to tune in and get that information from you as experts, because I, I don't think it is up um, or well known. And what comes to my mind is maybe we need to, and I don't know if you do have this already in different languages, but what we have discovered over lockdown is when we're trying to get the messages out about a topic, that we record very a short message in the different languages on that topic and send it out that people are... Um, because some people are able to understand some English, but maybe not able to read the mm. different languages, but they are able to pick up their own language in an, a, 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 a verbal way. So we are recording it and sending it out. So maybe that's something also we could do at some stage of doing some sort of a, a just a, a little picture with some languages behind it to get that messages out there to people. And um, yes, yeah, so no ideas that come to mind. Sorry. Yeah, we do have um, some um, leaflets translated in different languages. And if I remember correctly, I think it was, um, we had Urdu translation and I can't remember complete. Can you, Margaret? I'm not sure which languages and I think we, yeah. we are having to update some of our materials. So we're going through a process now of updating. But uh, if we could work with you to do that, for you to tell us which languages do you need, you know, what, what kind of information do you want? And Shaz mentioned the Jewish group, and for them it was uh, women within that community would not be likely to call us, they would not be likely to approach us directly. So it was a case of um, 
upskilling some of the women within that community to provide the same support that we would provide um, because women within their community would be much more comfortable to approach another, another member of their own community for the information. So we were supporting them to support their own community and that's something we would be really, really interested to speak to you about. Uh, I think it's one great way of, because uh, people do want to support others, especially people that have been through this, um, that they really would like to help others as well, but uh, maybe unaware of, of um, the services you provide them, and they may want to volunteer and be one of your peer supporters, which is a wonderful way forward indeed to, to help. Is there, um, if people are suffering from this, is there tips um, that we can give even for pre-pregnancy, maybe we should start pre-pregnancy and talk a little bit about your plan and then some tips along the way um, to help people that are tuned in the season and how we can further support them? I think um, for the pre-planning, uh, speak to PSS if, if you feel comfortable doing that or look at the website. Part of it is to identify a GP who you can have a conversation with in advance of pregnancy just to say, look, this is the kind of thing I would like. Are you willing to prescribe antiemetics? Are you willing to prescribe them early? And if you're not, um, to try and find another GP who is prepared to be there for you when you need them, because obviously you, you don't know when you're going to fall pregnant. So there's that. Then there's also to find out what are the local hospital services, um, because there are different clinics so within the Birmingham area at uh, the Women's Hospital, Hartman's Hospital and Good Hope Hospital, there are day clinics. So this is a facility where you can go in in the morning, you can drop your kids at school, you can go into the hospital, have fluids and antiemetics through a drip um, and be ready by three o'clock to go and then pick up your kids. So the service works around the needs of the women who want to use it. If you're still sick and you need to be admitted, then you can be admitted. But the service is designed to work around your life and the things that you need to do in your life. So it's good to know what those services are um, and which hospitals have them. And how do you get a referral? Do you need your GP to refer you? Can you refer yourself? Can your midwife do it? Um, you know, these are the crucial pieces of information to have in advance because when you're sick, it's difficult to try and find that out. So that's the first thing is about medical services and having that lined up. Then there's your family. So to make sure to find out, okay, which, in, who, which people in your family will be able to take your child, um, help you with the school run or nursery? Um, could you maybe increase your nursery hours to, to have more childcare for your preschooler? Could you have uh, prepare meals to have in the freezer? ready for your family so you don't have to cook um, and have things lined up if there were things you were able to eat in your previous pregnancy could you have these ready so that they're in the cupboard ready for when you need them Shaz, mm -hmm. um, anything else? Yeah, I mean I, I would say that um, bland foods are better than anything that is overly spicy um, it depends really I think mostly what I've had, what we've heard is that um, the blandest of foods is what is um, what 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 women are able to digest, and um, just keeping away from smells that trigger nausea and vomiting. I mean, um, we've heard that even the smell of your husband is enough to to mm -hmm. throw up. <laughs>
Um, but when I say that, I mean, you know, his deodorant or, or, or um, aftershave. Yeah. Um, so, so keeping away from smells and, and if you're able to eat little and, and drink um, little um, as often as possible, if it's possible, um, it might not be, but, but having something in your stomach will break the cycle of vomiting and nausea but it might be that it comes back out, but it's better to have something there to throw up than nothing. Um, and, and also that what I found was that fizzy drinks, I know it's the most <laughs> unhealthy, it's the most unhealthiest of um, food items and drink items that you suddenly find are more digestible. Um, I found that for me, the blandest foods and fizzy drinks helped. Um, and it won't be every single fizzy, it might just be the one that, that you can stomach. Um, which is wonderful and I'm just looking at the time we're coming to the end of the show already would you believe I don't know where the time has gone to but I think what I need to say is if people want more information to go to your website phone your number we, we, we put up already previously Unity FM will have it to contact you and contact their, their medical profession their GPs their midwives because there is support there there is help there and you gave us lots of lovely examples of the the um, medical knowledge that is there now to help people uh, and with that I want to thank you both for coming on this evening's show and giving up your time which is wonderful um, to get that message across thank you so much indeed I'm sorry I had to cut you short there time goes by on this show so quickly to us indeed but our listeners I hope you enjoyed this evening's show please pass on this information it's vital it affects 10% of our community so please get the information out there and there's lots of people there that will help you, lots of professionals, lots of advice. So if you've missed out on anything, contact Unity FM and we're very happy to pass on either Margaret's or Shad's details to you as well um, to help you out. And until next week, have a good week, inshallah. Take care of yourself, keep safe, enjoy the lovely weather that we're having at the moment, but keep safe, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>